Hello, I'm RJ, and this is You Just Got Homeschooled. Um, this is my very first episode doing this ever, so I'm going to try to make it quick and interesting, but we'll see how it goes. Um, I want to tell you the story about how I kind of got into homeschool. Um, as you can imagine, uh, like most of us, we, didn't, we weren't raised in homeschool. We didn't have much experience with it. Um, but I was a weird kid, I guess, in many ways. I, I was a kid that woke up early on Saturday mornings to go watch National Geographic. And then, um, I don't know about your house, but in my house, uh, the only clock, or at least the main clock we had in our house, like in our family room, was military time. And that's because my dad was a Marine and he bought the, the stereo uh, set when he was stationed in Korea. And so it only came in military time. And so I learned to tell time on a 24-hour clock uh, at home, and my favorite show, Marty Stelford's Wild America, came on at 1,700 hours every day, and that was like the time I went and sat down. And so, because our TV time was limited, um, I, I really try to use that well, and I'm just a natural learner. I love learning. And I'll explain why this goes into to homeschooling here in a second, but um, I want you to to hear me now that that I really do love learning, and that's what led me to to the homeschool thing as a whole and to become a teacher with a homeschool or right, in the homeschool arena. So, um, so the next thing that I remember, I mean, growing up, I went to public school, uh, regular, you know, kindergarten, first grade, second grade, all those. And I don't remember a lot of my classroom stuff. Like I remember certain things, um, from my time in elementary school. I remember, um, having two teachers, in third grade, they were team teaching, and that was kind of cool. And I remember doing an art project underneath my desk with crinkled up paper bags and raising some silkworms. And then I also remember um, we had assemblies every day, and every day we would like sing, you know, do the Pledge of Allegiance and sing some patriotic song. But the next distinct memory I had of education, or at least in my classroom, was in fourth grade I had a teacher, Miss McNeil, and. Um, we did lots of things. One of the things we did every week is we had a time every week. I don't remember what day, day it was during the week, but we would sit down and she would read stories to us or play music and we would color. And that sounds weird for fourth graders. And I guess to some degree it, it was, but it was a great time of education for me because I learned, you know, the, the worksheets had different animals on them and different, you know, they, they follow different themes. And then the other thing we did is we sang a lot of patriotic songs. And so we got a, one of those manila file folders and every week we get a different song. So I learned like, you know, the Marine Corps hymn and the army hymn and the air force and a lot of the patriotic songs. And so those were, those added in. Um, to my to my understanding and, and to my learning, and although they don't normally fit into what we think of as like academic education, they were still really influential. I still know and sometimes catch myself singing them periodically. The other thing about Miss McNeil's class that I, I remember, I remember which classroom it was. I remember her. Um, I don't remember anything else I learned that year, but but she had a friend who had been an archaeologist, and I don't know whether or not this item was real and authentic. I think it was. My memory says that it was, but it seems a little weird to me now. But as we walked in the door on the bookcase, because there's a wall on the right and the bookcase on the left, on that bookcase sitting on top of it was a, a square uh, wooden frame that had in it a piece of stone, but in that stone was embedded a skull. And from what she told us, it was a young Mesoamerican girl's skull. 
and that sounds weird. And it was like, you know, the profile, like, so like half the, you know, like jawbone and then the part of the cranium was, was exposed. And I remember sitting there walking in, looking at it, touching it throughout the school year. I'm thinking that it was really interesting. And that kind of began to really sink in to some degree um, of just what it like, the how humanity is, what humanity is, and how different lives can be. That, that I'm sitting here as a fourth grader touching the, the bones, the skull of this, I think she said it's probably around 12, between 10 and 12-year-old girl's head you know, hundreds or maybe even thousands of years later. And that just blew my mind. And then fast forward um, to seventh grade. I remember a distinct instance where um, for about two weeks, we were learning um, percentages, how to do percentages. And I had been taught by my dad when I was a little bit younger how to do percentages. And so I understood it one way, which was Whenever you're trying to find a percent, you divide it by 100 and then multiply it by the number you're looking for. So it didn't matter what it was. If I was trying to find out 50% of 5, I would take 5, divide it by 100, then multiply that, that answer by 50. And that's how I got it. But that was not the way we were taught. And so I got into a two or three week kind of, not argument, but like disagreement with my teacher. Because she kept trying to push me to one way. She kept trying to to make me do it the way that she taught it and the way that taught it in the book. And so I always got the right answer, but I never showed the work that she wanted. I showed work. I always showed work, but it, I didn't show it the way she wanted. And eventually she ended up relenting because I just would not let it go. I'm like, I always get the right answer. I can explain what I did. I showed all of my work. It just wasn't the work you taught me because I just didn't get it the way that she taught it. And I was like, okay, why, why am I being penalized when I'm getting the right answer and, I'm get, and I can tell you how and it works every time and you can't tell me why it doesn't work the way that I have it, you know, I'm showing it. And so um, eventually she relented and we got past that unit and it was okay and it was fine from there on else because everything else became a part of a different problem and so it wasn't as big a deal. But in the following year in eighth grade, um, I had a teacher for history named Mr. Bakker. Now, Mr. Bakker was one of these people that you just, he has one of those life stories you don't see very often and you just can't comprehend. The first thing I remember about him is he was a little bit older. Um, you know, he was probably in his, I want to say late 50s, maybe early 60s at the time. He's teaching eighth grade history and um, he had really short fingers. I don't know what the condition's called, but basically his fingers were about maybe two thirds the size that they should have been normally. But that's the first thing you recognize. Then you also learn relatively quickly that he was an EMT and a paramedic for a while. But then he gets into his deeper story throughout the course of the school year and you learn that he was actually a pilot during the Cold War, stationed in Japan and Korea and Taiwan, and he wasn't really allowed to talk about what he did while he was there. Um, he was married to a Korean woman. Um, during his time in the Orient, he had learned seven, became a black belt in seven different forms of martial arts, and his wife was a seventh degree black belt in Taekwondo. That's a lot of work. Um, and so, you know, later on, I put two and two together and realized that he must have been a spy plane pilot because he wasn't allowed to talk about what he did. I knew he flew high altitude aircraft and he was stationed in the Orient. So, I mean, the likelihood of him being a spy plane pilot was really high. Now, that was really interesting. But what was even more um, important to me is the way in which he taught history. He didn't teach history just by, you know, go to chapter five read sections one, two, and three, and answer questions, you know, the odd questions in the back of the chapter. And 
instead he would tell stories. And I don't remember all of them, but I remember that one of the stories he told was the first time I heard the story about the Battle of Thermopylae, which if you don't know is the, the story of how 300 Spartans led by King Leonidas of Sparta um, marched to the hot gates at Thermopylae, which is a pass between the sea and a, and a cliff face, and stalled the Persian army um, for, you know, it was conservatively around a quarter, 200,000, quarter million men coming to invade Greece. Stalled them there for, I want to say close to a week or maybe more, um, which then allowed the other city, Greek city-states, to come together. And they all died. They, they, were all, they all died in this battle. But the fact that a, a force of 300 Spartans plus about 2,000 allied troops were able to hold back an army of nearly a quarter of a million for as long as they did was just impressive. The sacrifice, the valor, like that's what stuck with me. The, emoti the emotions and just the recognition that you could lose so well. But then it wasn't just that. I mean, as an eighth grade teacher at a small school, he was able to talk to the principal, and the principal let him bring in a, a katana, a samurai sword, which his, and he brought it in, and it comes again with a story. And this story, this time, is his uncle had served in the South Pacific during World War II. And this particular sword, his uncle had pulled off a dead Japanese officer at one of these battles in the South Pacific. He had taken the captured Japanese flag, wiped the blood, presumably American blood, off this sword onto that flag, stuck it in a box with a letter and mailed it back to the States asking his sweetheart to marry him. That's a ridiculous story, but I remember it. And now it's been, what, 25 years later? The same time he brought in that sword, he also brought in a rifle. Now, it was a, like a, a muzzle-loading uh, rifle. That, and he was like, you know, this isn't a rifle that was used during the Civil War, but it's the kind of rifle that would have been used. And let us hold it and touch it and feel it. And that changed the way I viewed history. I went on um, in high school to really enjoy history. I, got, I ended up uh, moving after my freshman year of high school into AP and honors classes, not because I wanted to get ahead, not because I was working towards something bigger, not because I had any great dreams of going to college. I mean, I wanted to go to college, but it wasn't like the end-all, be-all of what I wanted to do. Um, but I, I loved my history classes, and I, and I got out of what I considered like the muck and the mire because I remember very distinctly my freshman year, I learned more about drugs and sex um, from my classmates just sitting in class than I ever did about English that entire second semester. I was like, I can't do this anymore. You know, I'm the curious kid. I like learning stuff and I want to learn stuff. And I wasn't learning what I wanted to be learning. And so I got out of those classes into better classes. Um, and that get, pro provided me the opportunity my senior year to be part of Mock UN. And that was a great experience. Again, outside of the normal classroom realm. Um, and the teachers who were doing that class, um, it was government economics teachers and they were working together. And what they did is they sat down and they looked and they paired us all up and they then decided based on our personalities, the way that we presented ourselves, what countries we were going to be in, what countries we were going to play in this mock UN. And this is all after the AP test. So our classes are basically done. We're just filling space. I probably learned more there than I ever did um, in regular classroom stuff. So then I go to college, I major in history. I love that. I loved what I did there. I loved what I learned there. I loved the arguments with the professors. 
Um, I had a lot of them. I'm that kind of person. I'm the one that raises my hand and asks questions like, what about, what if, how does that work? That doesn't make sense. That's not commiserate with what you just told us, those type of things. And so um, I graduated. I got married literally the, the weekend after. And I, and I moved back to my hometown with my new wife. And I couldn't find a job. It was 2008. Um, everything had collapsed. And so I got a job subbing. And while I was subbing, um, this is where things really begin to shift. Now, a little bit of backstory on this. While I was in college, I needed a job, so I started tutoring. And I enjoyed tutoring. It was basically homework help, you know, mostly junior hires helping them with homework, sometimes high schoolers who are working on AP classes, stuff like that, but mostly junior hires working on their homework and just kind of helping them out. So I had a background kind of tutoring a wide variety of subjects, English, math, science, history, all those things. And so I get this job subbing, and I'm just going around babysitting, basically in classrooms, and that's all I really did. But then I had a friend of mine who was a, a teacher um, at an independent study high school, and they were looking for an on-campus tutor for math. And they had tried several other people, and they, none of them could do the math. And so she's like, why don't you give it a shot? So I did, and it was like, it, you know, it wasn't a long-term thing. It was I could run my 30 days as a sub, and then I'd have to switch over to the other school on campus and then run 30 days there. But what ended up happening was is I would spend every day on campus helping kids out, providing tutoring um, for any kids who walk through the door. But after a couple of weeks, what in, they had one particular student, I don't remember her name, but her biggest problem wasn't the math. It was the fact that when she was in a, in a classroom setting, like normally these kids were independent study. They didn't have to deal with a lot of people. They didn't have to deal with the classroom pressures or settings. And so when you put her in that, the fear of failure would rise up in her and cause her to shut down and act out in anger. And so what they did is they gave her to me and they said, you're going to be her teacher. Well, I didn't understand the math at that point. I mean, I did, but I didn't understand it well. So what I would do is every morning um, before class I, or before I, you know, she showed up, I would go and sit in the previous period and learn it from the teacher like the students. And then I would go and I would teach it to this kid. And it taught me something very important. Like I remember the first day she came in and we started teaching. Within five minutes, she was crying, like just bawling in tears. And I had to like, you know, what am I supposed to do with a 15, 16-year-old girl who's crying in my classroom? Um, I'm not exactly sure what to do with this. And so what I ended up doing was um, kind of giving her space, you know, for a minute or two, telling her everything's going to be okay, and we'll try it again a different way. And what I learned very, very clearly during this time period as a teacher is that sometimes it's not the material, it's the way it's presented. And so with her, I would try something and it wouldn't work. And I'd try something and it wouldn't work. And I'd try something and it wouldn't work. And I'd try something and it wouldn't work. And I tried again and something would work. I had to keep coming at it over and over and over and over again. She was a smart kid. But the way that, that education worked for most kids didn't work for her. And once we removed the classroom setting, she shut down a lot less. And once she realized that I didn't look down on her for not getting it the first time or the second time or the third time, it made everything so much easier. And so she ended up, I mean, I ran my time. I, I finished out. I couldn't work anymore at that school because of the way that the laws are working. And so, um, but she ended up doing just fine and continuing on and being fine. And I, you know, ended up having to move to a different part of the state, which I did. And uh, I got here. I had my first kid. And or got there, had my first kid, and then started to tutor again because I needed income. It's 2009 now, and there's not any more jobs than there was. And 
so I start tutoring and again, it's junior hires and stuff like that. And one junior hire I remember in particular, he, he didn't like math either. And, and he didn't understand why you had to do it and stuff like that. So one day I was like, well, how much water do you have in your pool? He was like, I don't know. I'm like, well, let's figure it out. So we go out to his pool in the side yard. He lives in this great Victorian house. It's an awesome house. Um, side note, completely unimportant to the story, but he had this pool. And so we took some basic measurements and then we started working the problem to figure out, well, we could turn this into a rectangle or then we could turn that into a cube and then that into a triangle. And let's figure out roughly how much water in the, is in this, this pool. And, and that seemed to get his mind going, especially when a couple of weeks later they had a project of building a boat out of a certain number of, you know, certain types of things. And so we were able to do that and figure out displacement and all that kind of stuff. And it was great. Um, but another one that, that kind of solidified, this one probably more so than the other ones, solidified to me the importance of individualized education. Um, I had this student, she was in third grade, little sweet girl, very smart. Um, and, and she loved learning and she was, you know, just bright and bubbly. And I loved going and sitting down with her twice a week and helping her with her homework and teaching her new things. And I get up there one time and she's like, I don't understand and it was decimal places or decimal points. She didn't understand decimals at all. And I never seen this girl cry. She just starts crying because she's like, I don't understand it. I don't understand it. I don't get it. I don't understand it. And you know, I'm sitting there trying to figure it out. I'm, I'm kind of racking my mind, trying to figure out how to, how to teach this to her. And I try it one way and that doesn't work. And I try it another way that doesn't work. And I'm like, you know, how long have you been doing this? She's like, oh, you know, we've been doing it for like two weeks. And, and up until now, like my mom's been helping me and it's been okay, but I just, I still don't understand it. And it, like the test is coming up and she's just stressing out. You can see it on her face. This little, little tiny third grade girl. And it's like, this is really you know, frustrating for me. So then I'm using a whiteboard. So then what I do is I, you know, I write, I forgot what number it was, but it's like 0.5. And I was like, well, maybe I'll try this. So I put a dollar sign in front of it. And I'm sitting to her left and her, her head whips left. And she looks at me and she goes, it's like money? It's like, yeah, it's just like money. In fact, it is money. She goes, oh. So then I write down, what if I put 0.1? What is that? Oh, that's 10 cents. What if I put 0.05? Oh, that's a nickel. What about 0.25? Oh, that's a quarter. Okay. And then from there, I just, well, it's, yeah, you're right. It's just like money, right? It's just like money. And here are the fractions. And we went from her crying to her getting it, understanding and being able to do everything she was supposed to be able to do in like 45 seconds. Because I was able to figure out how her mind worked and what she needed to understand the process. And she went on and did great things. And so like those are, that what really got me thinking. Um, about that time I was in grad school to become a teacher. I, I did that. I got my credential. Um, I got my master's in education. The whole time I was in that whole system, they're like differentiate instruction, differentiate instruction, which is code words for individualized instruction for every student in a class of 30 or more. And I'm sitting here going, uh, this is great. How do you do that? But of course they never really tell you how to do that because I don't think they know how to do that because it's not really possible to do that practically because me as a teacher trying to teach 30 kids, 
the same type of concept on the same schedule without having time to work with them one-on-one -on -one or even in small groups is just not possible. And so they pound this into your head and then basically tell you or you know tell you that it can be done and send you off and then we wonder why the attrition rates like the number of people who go into teaching and then leave are so high it's because of this st stupid stuff basically so um when my daughter is born and she starts to get old enough to go to school uh we we send her to a, a small christian school in our area a brand new uh classical christian model and i love it it's great um my job that I, my teaching job, which I loved, ended, um, and I we needed to move, and so we moved to Southern California, and the school I was working for down there was another, you know, Christian school, and they had an option for to have my kid attend there. I put her in that classroom. Um, I'm beginning to wonder why. Uh, her classrooms were bigger than the classrooms in my the local school, and I, to my knowledge, she didn't learn any more than she would have in a regular public school. And I, like, it was just a hardship for us financially and other, other ways. But then after that, I took a year off from teaching. Um, I did a little bit of tutoring. I was going to grad school for something completely different. And then I got a job um, working for an independent study school. And that really allowed me to then transition. Actually, that last year um, when I wasn't working, we had moved my daughter into a homeschool in this independent study school. And then the following year, I got the job there. And that opened my eyes to just how important and how helpful homeschool is. Because my daughter is the kid who looks at the page and thinks she might not understand what to do and starts the process of falling apart. Um, and that's hard as a teacher to deal with. And it's hard as a parent to deal with because you're like, but you didn't read the instructions. Yeah, but it's too hard. And so um, we had to start getting creative. I had to start getting creative. And so um, what I ended up doing is, you know, like for math, I distinctly remember when we were first teaching addition subtraction, we had to do what I dubbed stuffy math, which is we go and get stuffed animals and line them all up and say, here's two stuffed animals and there's three stuffed animals. If we put them all together, how many do we have? And then she'd sit there and go one, two, three, four, five, and then it's another three minutes to get her to write five on the page. And then we do it back and forth. And then, so, I mean, that's just how it is. Or that's how it was. But because I was homeschooling her, we were able to do that. Meanwhile, in first grade, when she was at the, the bigger Christian school with a, other, you know, a large classroom size, she never really got that. Like the fact that in second grade, I, I had to teach her a basic addition and a subtraction with, with stuffed animals um, should tell you that obviously whatever she was doing at the regular school or at the, the, the Christian school that she was at wasn't working very well. And so, and that still progressed. I mean, even today, now she's, she'll be going into fifth grade, which scares me because that means that I'm way older than I thought I was. Um, I've never taught her fractions, but she loves to bake. And so although I've never officially sat down with a whiteboard or a pen or a marker and shown her how to do fractions, she understands fractions because I don't let her bake unless she does it. And so she gets it now, more so. And it probably could use some cleanup, but now we're working from a basic of, I, I leverage something she loves in order to get her to do something that she needs to learn to do. And so, that's really my journey from homeschool and, and why I love it so much and why I'm passionate about it. I'm a high school teacher by trade. I love high schoolers. I love 
they're the fact that I can have a conversation with them. I love the banter back and forth. I love their curiosity, their creativity, and that they're always going to surprise me. And I love the fact that I can learn from them. They know things I can never know. Um, Or maybe not never know, but it will take me a long time to learn because they just grew up in a different environment. And so those kids who can, you know, show me how to do stuff on the computer or can, you know, let me into their life in one way or another are great. And so that's what I'm hoping to do with this. You've just got you know, you just got homeschooled podcast. And then um, my subsequent offerings is to help those of you who are, are struggling with homeschooling or not sure what that looks like and just say, hey, this is what the journey is. I am still in it. I'm, you know, we change our curriculum all the time as to fit our needs. And we're about to start on a whole new realm with my, my now five-year-old who'll be going into kindergarten in this fall. And I don't know how to teach someone how to read. I've never done it before, but we're going to figure it out because... That's how life works, you know, and, and, and it's okay with me if he doesn't read in kindergarten or even in first grade, um, maybe even in second grade. We'll see because every kid is different. And ultimately, the world our kids are going into is nothing like the world that we had. And we need to stop preparing them for a job that doesn't exist. I mean, who of us as parents, like I'm, you know, not that old. Um, I feel really old, but not that old. Like I didn't grow up with the internet in my house. But my kids have never known a time without the internet in their house. The biggest TV I think I'd ever seen as a kid was, you know, maybe 30 inches. And now that's like a small TV. You can get computer monitors that size. So um, I just wanted to introduce myself. I'm RJ. Once again, I, I hope you liked this story and I, and I hope that you'll stick around as I add more and more as I just come and and present uh, my passion for homeschooling and also my passion for education and individualized education because your kid deserves the best and the best is tailored to them, not tailored to a mass that comes with tests. And, you know, those things are all important, but in their place and in their time and in their way because the world that we have going forward is not the world we've had in the past. And the education system that, you know, we are told to send our kids to is not the education system that is going to prepare them. Because if it was, we wouldn't be having the problems we have. I'm glad you got to listen, and I will talk to you later.